you're using one of the Bibles in the pews around you, which I highly encourage you to do, read along as I read, uh, turn to page 907 in those uh, Bibles. And I'm going to read our text for us. I'm going to read chapter 21, verses 1 to 19, and then we'll focus on uh, 1 to 17. All right. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. And he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, the two other, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. And they said to him, we'll go with you. And they went out and got into the boat. And, but that night they caught nothing. And just as the day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore. Yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to them, Children, do you have any fish? And they answered to him, No. And he said to them, Cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you'll find some. So they cast it. And now there were, they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, It's the Lord! And when Simon Peter heard it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped down for work and threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. When they got out on the land, they saw the charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of those fish that you caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were, they were so many, the net was not torn. And Jesus said to, him, said to them, come and have breakfast. And now none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And he said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. And he said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, tend my sheep. And he said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he had said it to him the third time. Do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, 
that when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me, follow me. Well, if you walk away from this morning in this text with anything, I I pray that you walk away with this, that Jesus reveals himself to his disciples to strengthen faith and secure restoration. That's the main point. That's where I'm going this morning. Jesus reveals himself to his disciples to strengthen faith and secure restoration. Okay. So this ending of John is called the epilogue of the gospel. Now, there has been much scholarly debate uh, about whether or not this was an original ending to the gospel. However, it's my understanding and after much reading and study that it is. And it and and we know that the from the fragments and the the gospels and the the, um, original documents that we have, not the the copies of the originals that we have. We don't have any originals. Wish we did. Uh, But the the gospel never circulated without this chapter. Uh, And so uh, it is the original ending to the gospel. Uh, The whole chapter actually acts like a book end to the entire gospel of John. And so you have the first, uh, the uh, epilogue, or the, the, the epilogue here at the end, and then you have the prologue in the beginning, and they work together to sort of hold the entire book together. Uh, there are many uh, evidences of this. If you read chapter one, which I would say this is like always a good uh, idea if you're trying to understand sort of where is the author going in a text, especially biblical text, read the first chapter, read the last chapter, and, and you're going to get like a, a, a big picture of like what's actually going on in the scriptures. And, and so they, these work together. Uh, one of the specific ways that uh, that's interesting about how these are linked is that uh, here are some of the very first of the 12 disciples that follow Jesus uh, are listed here in uh, this chapter and in chapter one. Uh, also, uh, this this uh, last chapter of John is is significant, we might say, because it ties up one of the greatest loose ends there is flapping around out in the wind right now, because I mean, think with me for a moment. What would the gospel, what would the ending of the gospel be like if we really didn't know what happened to Peter after his denial in chapter 18? One of the first founding fathers of the church, along with the other 12 disciples, who plays a major role in the beginning of the history of the spread of the gospel in Acts chapter 2. And what would it be like if this gospel ended with Peter not being restored in a way? So, I want us to see two things in the text this morning. In verses 1 to 14, I want us to see a faith-strengthening revelation. A faith-strengthening revelation. All right? And the second thing I want us to see this morning in uh, verses uh, 15 to 17 is a hope-infused restoration. So we'll see a faith-strengthening revelation and a hope-infused restoration. 
Not only do we have the first chapter and the last chapter of John acting like bookends, but also we have a little thing in uh, linguistics and language and literature called an inclusio in verses 1 to, and 14. Notice that there's similar, similar structure in words. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way. Then the last verse in 14, this section, this is how this is now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. Notice that there's similar language, there's similar uh, vocabulary, and so this shows that this unit, 1 to 14, is actually a unit. It's a little bit of a nicely packaged uh, story here about how Jesus reveals himself the third time to the disciples. Um, now, uh, Jesus appears for the third time after his resurrection. He had already appeared twice in the room as they hid in Jerusalem in fear of their life, fear of the Jews. And, but the only difference here is that it's only seven of the disciples instead of eleven. Uh, there's been much speculation and much literature written about why was it just these seven. Uh, there's no definitive answer. Okay, Sorry, I can't provide that for you this morning. But I would say one of the most plausible answers is that these are the disciples that are the most prominent in the gospel itself. Um, just think back with me to John chapter 1. It's, it's uh, Peter, Nathaniel, the sons of Zebedee, James, and John who are the first disciples who are called into the ministry in John chapter 1 verse 40 and John chapter 1 verse 43. So it only, I mean, it makes sense if you're writing a complete literary unit that you would include the same characters in the ending as you started with in the beginning. And then you have Thomas the twin who hopes uh, that if, uh, you know, in the resurrection of Lazarus, that if Jesus's followers die like Lazarus, then they too will be raised to new life as they place their hope in Jesus as the resurrection and the life, which is the ending of the first book in the John, which is called the book of signs, which Jesus reveals himself to be in the seventh sign, the, re the resurrection and the life. So, so, so um, John here is showing his literary mastery here and, and sort of bringing together all of these amazing ties throughout all the rest of his gospel right here in these last few verses of the entire book. The disciples, notice the setting there in verse 2 or verse 1, they are by the Sea of Tiberias. Now, um, if you're like me, sometimes you read things and you go, why do they change the name? Uh, well, I don't always know. Maybe it's for just changing things up. I mean, John has been using synonyms and interchanges words uh, often, uh, I guess, to break up some of the monotony. But this is, is the Sea of Galilee, okay? This is the Sea of Galilee. So the disciples have gone back as they had been commanded by Christ immediately after his resurrection in Matthew 28. They, they've, this is an act of obedience to go back and be found by, by the Sea of Galilee. They're back waiting for Jesus to reveal himself. And they go fishing, not because they have given up on their faith or they've apostatized. Rather, they simply are going on with life. They must continue to eat. They must continue to provide for their families. Uh, this is not an act of apostasy. This doesn't mean, though, that there wasn't any sorrow or questioning at this time. 
The fact that there is a third revelation here demonstrates that Christ believed it necessary to make himself known to the disciples to strengthen all of their faith, specifically Peter's faith at this time. So Jesus is acting in a way to to strengthen their faith. And what's truly amazing, brothers and sisters, is the fact that they had not walked away. The disciples though, have a budding faith that is growing in them that will bring about true belief in Christ. They're beginning to understand that without Christ, they can do nothing. Reinforced by the fact that they catch nothing without Him. And then they they know that if they're to love Christ, which we saw earlier in the Gospel of John, that they are to obey His commands. So go back to Galilee. It's what we're supposed to do. They were told in John 16 about the sorrow that Jesus, before Jesus, before they would have joy, that there would be much sorrow over the fact that he was killed by the people he came to save. They also knew that there was nowhere else to turn. Where else are we to go, Jesus? But the one that they had followed for three years was crucified, dead and buried. And although he had appeared to them twice already, there were still questions and there was still much sorrow and sadness that weigh on their hearts. What will the days ahead really be like? What will it be like when the Holy Spirit is actually given to them? When? When will the helper come? When will this promised one who will help us in the absence of our Christ? When will it take place? They were grappling. They were truly grappling with the strangeness. And brothers and sisters, let's just be honest. A dead man raised from the grave. That doesn't happen very often. It's only happened once so far. There's only one empty grave in this world and it's Jesus's. And as they grapple, evidenced in verse 12, that they're even afraid to ask. Yet in their minds and in their hearts, there's a confidence that this is their Lord. The Lord of Lords is before them in resurrected form. But Jesus then arrives on the shore. Once again, commanding them to let down their nets. Now, if we're talking about inclusios, think about what Peter is thinking right now. Haven't I heard this before? Mm. Are you telling me to let down my net? Some guy that just jumped in my boat? Started preaching a message and then we're headed back to shore. He's like, oh, you guys don't have any fish. Uh, Let down your nets. Just like Luke 5. Where the disciples, specifically Peter, act in faith and trust in this unknown Messiah figure. Where faith is fanned into flame as the nets come up full. And then the light bulb goes off in John's mind as they're pulling in this large net of fish. It's the Lord, Peter, guys, listen, it's Jesus standing on the shore. And as soon as the word leaves John, the word Jesus leaves John's lips, Peter tightens his cloak around him so that nothing can hinder him. 
to get to his Lord and Savior Jesus. Instead of running from the Lord as an act of apostasy uh, in the midst of doubt and sorrow, Peter jumps in the water, swims to shore, and shortly afterwards, the rest of the disciples row in some 100 yards to be with Jesus once again. They knew they needed him. They knew they wanted to be in his presence. Peter needed all of Jesus. He needed Jesus' living. He needed his crucifixion. He needed his resurrection. He needed his ascension. And he even needed Jesus to feed him breakfast. He needed every last drop of Christ as possible. So he jumped out of the boat and literally swam a hundred yards. I don't know if you've even run across the football field. But swimming 100 yards doesn't sound like an act of apostasy. It sounds like someone who desperately knows their need for Jesus. And I I personally, I know that I've been guilty of, of, of questioning Peter's faith here as you read them going back to fishing. But I think we so quickly forget what Jesus said to Peter in Luke chapter 22. Because was it not Jesus who prayed in the midst of Satan's seeking out Peter to have Peter? Satan wants Peter from Jesus. And Peter says, or Jesus says to Peter, no, I prayed that your faith would not fail. So this is unfailing faith as a man leaps himself out of a boat into water, fish infested water, to go to Jesus, to go to his Savior. Family and friends, you need all of Jesus too. You need his living because you can't obey the law perfectly. You need his crucifixion because you can't die a death that is sufficient enough to to save you from the wrath of God, much less save the person next to you from the wrath of God. You need Jesus. You need his resurrection because if Jesus doesn't conquer death, there's absolutely no hope that you will conquer death and be raised from the dead on the last day. And brothers and sisters, if he's not been raised from the dead, you are most of all to be pitied sitting here saying you got faith in a dead, buried, still in the grave Messiah. That's not the Jesus we worship. We worship a raised Savior. We worship a resurrected, living Savior sitting at the right hand of the Father. And you can swim to Him today. You can run to Him. You can bank on Him. You can know Him. You can find Him. He is here to be discovered. He's here. So what loose garment do you need to tidy up to come to Jesus? What weight do you need to lay aside to run to him today? What sin do you need to kill by the power of the spirit that you cast yourself unashamedly upon Christ as your only hope in life and death? 
You can have strength and faith today. No matter how fragile it is. No matter what questions you have. You can have faith in Christ today. Because He is still meeting His people. Gifting Him with faith. Flaming that faith to flame. that For the fame of His name and the good of His people. And how good it is. When Peter is restored. How good it is. When I was restored. How good it is. When you were restored. How good it will be for those of you who lack faith today. Who will be restored to Christ Jesus as their Lord and Savior. Come to Him. Swim to Him. Find Him. Look to Him. Read your word and see Him. So we see in verses 1 to 14... That Jesus reveals himself as in a third time to strengthen the faith of these disciples. Now let us look a little closer to see a hope fused restoration in 15 to 17. Read with me again there the text. I'm going to read it aloud. You follow along. When they had finished breakfast. Jesus said to Simon, Simon, son of John. Do you love me more than these? Likely more than these disciples. It could be more than the fish and the sustenance that Jesus had provided. But he's likely talking about the disciples. Do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said, feed his, Jesus said to him, feed my lambs. And he said a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know I love you. And he said to him, tend my sheep. Jesus said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he had said it a third time. Do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. One thing I think is extremely interesting about this text is the setting. Now the seven, including Peter and Jesus, have just finished breakfast. They're likely sitting around what is said to be a charcoal fire. A charcoal fire, keeping warm as they spoke with one another. What's intriguing about this is back in chapter 18, specifically John chapter 18, verse 18, Jesus and Peter, more poignantly, are near a charcoal fire in the courtyard of the high priest. Then it's there. As Jesus had warned that Peter would publicly deny Jesus three times. And that stinking chicken would crow. Imagine the look. The looks that were traded between Jesus and Peter. As the noise of the rooster pierces the questions of Jesus by the charcoal fire in the courtyard of the high priest. But now we're by another fire. Jesus has cooked breakfast. 
And his aim was not warmth, although he did bring the heat. Or a friendly chit-chat by the fire. He plans to restore Peter to the ministry and work that he had set him apart to do. Peter, though in the upper room during the Passover meal and the institution of the Lord's Supper, had publicly declared, Christ, I'm prepared to go anywhere you go, whether to prison or to death, I will go. But then, as he makes that public declaration in the very public courtyard of the high priest, questioned by servants, Peter publicly denies knowing Christ three times. So he's standing there in a private room with the Lord of Lords before him and boldly declares before the King of Kings, I'll go anywhere you take me. I'll go anywhere I'm supposed to go. And then before the servants of the high priest, he says, I don't know that man. Publicly denying him. So it's the restoration that now takes place in this public manner. Peter had publicly disowned Christ, and now Christ will publicly restore Christ to service. And just as Peter denied knowing Jesus three times, Jesus asked three times whether Peter actually loved him. And Peter answers three times. But note Peter's answer. That it's not Peter's confidence, his own you know, strength, or it's not Peter's works or the, the, the measure of his love that grounds his, that grounds his answer to Jesus? No, what does Peter appeal to? He appeals to the knowledge of Jesus to defend his love. Peter is known to love Christ not because of how wonderful Peter is, or how mighty his works are, or how many his works are, but because Peter knows that he is known by Jesus. There, by the charcoal fire, the all-knowing or the omniscient Christ, the all-knowing Christ has the knowledge of Peter's denial, but knows a forgiving, a forgiven, loving Peter that when empowered by the Holy Spirit will be the one who cares for and feeds the great shepherd's sheep. Listen to that again. There by the fire, the all-knowing Christ knows of Peter's denial. But he also knows a forgiving, loving Peter that upon being empowered by the Spirit will feed his sheep and tend to his flock. As Peter denied Christ three times by the charcoal fire, he is now restored to service after a threefold confession of his love for his Lord and Savior. And what do we see in Jesus? Do we not see his tender mercy and loving kindness? He is not bent on punishing Peter for his sins. Jesus, in an act of restoration, Asking tough questions which left, which left Peter with no other hope than the knowledge of Jesus. Whether or not he loved him. Because 
In that moment, he considered Peter more significant than himself being offended by denial. Think of all the amazing and wonderful, powerful things that Jesus could have done in his resurrection. In his resurrected state. But he tenderly goes to Peter to restore him. Hope is seen in the fact that Jesus didn't see a lying, boastful, foot-in-his-mouth sinner. Jesus sees a restored under-shepherd of his sheep. Jesus sees a forgiven friend, not because of some willingness on Peter's part, namely to die or go to prison, but because of Jesus' crucifixion and atonement that secured for eternity the cleansing and salvation of Peter and sinners like Peter. Sinners like you and sinners like me. The resurrected king of kings was crouched by a fire with a man who had his sins removed as far as the east is from the west. He loved Peter and Peter loved him. And Peter was restored and reconciled because Jesus had been raised from the dead as the sure and final act of the salvation for all who trust in him, truly love him and are known by him. Brothers and sisters, let me be clear. It is only by being known by Jesus that we have any hope in this world or the next. Think of the warning in Matthew. At the end, when Jesus says the kingdom of God and the judgment day is like this, that there were a great gathering of sheep and goats. And Jesus divides them and he takes his lambs and then the goats are departed into Hades and some going on the way. What do they say? Did we not do these things? And Jesus has to tell them, depart from me, you workers of iniquity. I knew you not. Knowing Jesus and being made known by or being known by him are our only hope. So what does this mean for us? How do we take this faith strengthening revelation and this hope filled, hope infused restoration and live today? Well, first, I want to say, as we think about applying this text to our lives, in the third instance, when Jesus made himself known to his disciples, his aim was to give and strengthen faith. Jesus has a gift to give. Yes, it's eternal life, but it's also faith in him. So it is when anyone encounters Christ, every true Christian has met Jesus. We may not have crouched with him by a charcoal fire, but he has shown up in our lives in some way. Amen. He may not have appeared in resurrected form and shared a meal with us. However, there was a time in life of every person who calls themselves a Christian and is truly a believer today where you met Christ 
And upon meeting Him when you were in your sin, He changed you. He resurrected you from the dead. He made you alive again with the gift and promise of eternal life. He gifted you with the Holy Spirit. He, you began to love Him and life was completely changed from that point forward. Have you met Jesus and life been the same? No, absolutely not. And maybe, even today, for some of you sitting in this room right now, today's the day that you first met Jesus. May it be so. Come to faith. Jesus is giving faith. The resurrection Savior and Lord who redeems and reconciles sinners like you and me is here for us to, be, to, to meet with us. And meeting Jesus and being changed by Jesus is a part of every true believer's testimony. If you're a Christian, especially if you're a member of this church, we want you to be a regular sharer of your testimony. Because there was a time in your life when you did not know Jesus. And I'll just say for myself, I won't speak for anybody in the room, but life was not exactly on the rails. Then there was a time in my life when I met Jesus. And I woke up the next day and I was a different man. Now, I was a boy. I was 17. I was just a little man. But I was different. Something changed. Share. When you talk about your testimony, you talk about meeting Jesus. Be honest about what life was like before Christ. And then tell others what it was like when you fell on your knees and said, God, I'm a sinner and you're the only hope. I know it's you. You're the only one who can change me. And then share with them what life has been like since meeting Jesus. Yes, it's not been perfect. Yes, it's been bumpy. Yes, you've struggled with sin. Yes, you can't get, rid, get out of that dark place you th that you're in. But you know Jesus did something in your life. You know Jesus changed something. And it's upon sharing your testimony, talking about life before Jesus, meeting Jesus, after Jesus, upon sharing your testimony that can lead you into amazing gospel conversations with your friends, co-workers, and those who live around you. Maybe the person right next to you needs to hear your testimony. Another way that this text applies to our life how, what does it mean for us today? It applies to us in the way that we seek to be like Christ in going to the aid of brothers and sisters who may be doubting, questioning, sorrowful, and grappling with the truth of Scripture and the nature of God. Some people sitting right next to you not people out on the street, not people down at Safeway, not people at the Nats Park, not people in your neighborhood. Some people sitting right next to you are struggling today, brothers and sisters. They're doubting, they're questioning, they're sorrowful, they're in a dark place, and they're grappling with the truth of Scripture and the nature of God. How does this make sense? How do I make sense out of it? We must go to them. 
We must bear their burden with them. Doubt, questioning, and sorrow are not necessarily sin or sinful. Some of you need to hear that again. And I need to hear it over and over and over and again. Doubt, questioning, sorrow are not necessarily sin or sinful. I will just say this. We live in a broken world. We've not been given resurrected bodies as Christians yet. We still have this wretched decaying flesh upon us. There will be dark days. If they haven't come, they will come. And we will need to go to one another and bear one another's burdens. We will not have all the answers. But we have shoulders and we can walk with brothers and sisters in darkness. We have two of the most mighty weapons that God has ever given his people. His word, which is living and active and sharper than any two edged sword. And prayer. Because we can go to the one who has all the resources, who has all the answers, who has all the wisdom in the times of darkness. We can go to him in prayer because of what Jesus has done in giving us access to the throne of grace. Oftentimes, when things become a part of our relationship with the Lord, it's so easy to be tempted to wonder whether we have faith or whether that person struggling with that doubt really has faith in Jesus at all. However, we must see. That it's because we have faith that we would be even able to begin to ask honest questions and seek out sincere answers or grapple with concepts like the resurrection from the dead. Like, brothers and sisters, how does a dead man get up? Like something miraculous has to happen, something unexplainable. So if there's someone in here struggling with the resurrection... That's okay. And their struggle doesn't deny their faith or the actual resurrection. It's secure. Jesus got up from the grave. We can go to an empty tomb and we can know we know eyewitnesses. We know men who have put their lives on the line and been crucified like Christ. Beheaded. Because of the faith that Jesus gave them. It is only by faith that you would want to understand that a resurrected Jewish Messiah who conquered sin and death has followers and have joined him in the ministry of reconciliation. Well, I mean, if you're interested in that, you got faith. He's a gift. Now come and trust fully in this resurrected Savior. Be freed of your sin and come and be healed from your sorrow. So we shouldn't dismiss the brother or sister who may be doubting or questioning. We, like our tender, merciful Savior, should go to them and search out the scriptures and pray and encourage them to live faithfully. And then. We see in this text that there is truly hope for sinners like me and like you. 
to be saved by Jesus. There is hope. Praise God that our faith and hope and salvation do not rest on our shoulders. Praise God. Unending praise should come and roll from your tongue because your hope, your faith, your salvation is not dependent on you. It's what Jesus did in His living and dying and you can trust in that today. You can put your faith in that. You can repent of your sin. You can flee from the darkness into the light. Will you? You see Jesus in the text. Will you believe and repent today? And if you do, if that's you today, I, will, I would love to talk to you. There are others sitting around you that would love to talk to you. There's going to be people in the back in the final song that would love to talk to you if you have put your faith in Jesus today. And praise God, it doesn't rest on our shoulders. I think I got some amens by there, Burke, because I think if it rested on our shoulders, we'd mess everything up, wouldn't we? I mean, we'd mess it up. Like, we've already messed it up. Why? We love sin. We love the darkness. But oh, what hope there is in Jesus. No matter our sin, restoration and reconciliation are possible. Because of what Jesus has done, whether we have uncontrollable anger or whether we've not been godly parents or guardians, whether we've not led our homes well as husbands or whether you've struggled once again with lust or you've coveted that house. Oh, oh, I wish I made that salary or man, that job. I want that job. Whether you coveted in your heart. Or the myriad of other fickle inklings of your flesh and heart. There is hope in Jesus today. Christ's pursuit, revelation, and restoration of Peter shows that our God is a never giving up, always and forever lover of his children. He will have all of his sheep and none of them will escape his hand. It will grieve us as it grieved Peter to confess our specific sins before such a gracious gracious and merciful God. But upon our confession, do we believe? Do you believe that in our confession of treason against the high God, that he is not a God who will be wrathful to us, but he will forgive us upon our confession of faith, our, our confession of sin before him? Forgiveness, forgiveness can be found in Christ today. He is the one who strengthens our faith. He is the one who restores us when we sin. You can be changed today. Will you trust him? That's a bigger question than you think it is. 
Do you love him? Does he know you? Let us pray. Oh, Father God, we thank you for being such a great and merciful God. God, we tremble, we tremble before you in fear and majesty and you're, because of how amazing you are that you would allow sinners like me, sinners like us in your presence to sing your praises, to ask you questions, to make prayer requests to you. But oh God, you are so worthy. And God, I pray for anyone who in here is struggling today in darkness, in, in doubt. Oh God, may they be restored. May their faith be strengthened today. And Father God, I pray, God, that you would be saving your people. You would be gifting people with faith. You would be reconciling people to yourself. And may we be a church who joins you in that ministry of reconciliation. Making known what Jesus has done in our lives. And making Christ known, proclaiming him from the rooftops. And may you grant fruit of repentance and belief today. God, we love you. We thank you for revealing yourself to us. And we thank you for restoring us. Praise and glory and honor be unto you, our great God and King. We love you, Lord. May we ever be known by you today. In Christ's name, amen.